0: Thrilled to have my friend Derek Webb here with me this morning. Say good morning, Derek. Good morning, morning, Hi, everybody. Good to see you. It's a tough crowd. It is a tough. No, no, no it's great. It's great. It's early. So um, we had planned originally on having two services today, and so we had you submit questions uh, so we could have the two services be as close to the same as possible, and then. Midweek, we made the decision to go to one. And thank you all so much, those of you who are here. Uh, Thank you for following the mask uh, guidelines. Just this community has been so incredible and so flexible um, and agile as we've tried to navigate this. And we want to offer this experience in person as long as we possibly can, so thank you for that. So uh, we only have, we're only doing this once today, but I haven't seen any of these questions. So they came to Derek, and if you know me at all, this has been torture. Because I'm just curious. Like I just wanna know. If I buy a Christmas present for you, or you tell me you got a birthday present for me, and it's eight months in advance, I want it now. And I wanna give it to you now. So this has been a long week for me, and I'm so excited.
1: Yeah, I feel like we should have had the the lawyers for the Grammy Committee come in and verify that the questions had not been seen by you beforehand. (laughs) Which they haven't. They haven't. Because you're really good on your feet, and we have some great questions. Well, we'll see. (laughs) No, we do. We have good questions, <laughs> and and actually, and I, you have not necessarily approved this. But it, if if any of these questions as we go, if anybody does have a let's say like a, a brief follow up, um, I would love to see a hand go up and have somebody voice voice that, um, because obviously the thing that will be the most engaging um, for you uh, is if we are talking about things that you're specifically curious about uh, within these questions. So we would love to hear feedback like that uh, along the way, but I certainly have a lot of good questions to keep us going. So, all right, are you good? Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. Uh, So here's uh, one I thought would be great to get us started. Um, And I'm going to read these as they were written, just to give you the full. Uh, I get that I'm commanded to love my neighbor, and I'm mostly okay with that. Uh, I have no trouble loving my LGBTQ neighbor. I have no trouble loving my Jewish neighbor, my Muslim neighbor, atheist neighbor, agnostic, my Wiccan neighbor. But I run up against a wall when I'm asked to love my conservative Christian neighbor who harms all my other neighbors.
0: And can you speak to that? Agree, next question.
1: Uh. Great. (laughs) Uh, So let's see.
0: It it really, I mean, that is the challenge. Um, I, I feel that challenge deep in my bones when, um, but I think we also have to talk about what love means, um, because I think we have so sentimentalized love, um, that we think to love someone means to have like ooey-gooey warm feelings toward them, or to, you know, um, to, to make, we would never say anything back to them, we would never resist. and I think love actually cannot be separated from the idea of justice. Now, not justice in the way many of us In American culture have been trained to see justice which is like which is retributive justice where the whole goal of getting justice is getting even and it's punishing someone and it's making them feel as bad or as small or as excluded as they made you feel I don't think that's what justice is I I I think restorative justice justice that seeks to transform and to heal and to uh, mend what's broken that's beautiful and I think that's part of what love is so for me actually, maybe loving my conservative Christian neighbor is saying what you're doing and what you're saying is harming lots of people and it can't keep happening. What it may mean to love my conservative Christian neighbor is to hold a mirror in front of them and say, listen to what you're saying. Listen to the way you're saying it. Listen to, look at what you've been conscripted into. That that somehow to be uh, You're Christian, but maybe you're anti-LGBTQ or maybe you're pro-nationalism or whatever sort of has been now lumped into that conservative Christian uh, worldview. So I actually think loving them is, I'm going to Gandalf here, uh, you shall not pass, right? Loving them is saying, I love you and I love my other neighbors and so I can't allow you to harm them. And I'm not going to attack you, I'm not going to na- name call you, but I am going to say in, in the most love I can muster that what you're doing is harming others and yourself and something has to happen, And something has to give, you have to stop. So uh, I don't see loving my conservative Christian neighbor who is harm maybe through their, just their beliefs, they're harming people around them through their words, through their Facebook posts. Loving them is not giving them a pass, loving them is calling them to accountability. And I think that stretches across all, all different divisions and lines. And, like, love is about partially about accountability. Yeah, that's
1: really good. Um, okay, so this, I think, does dovetail a little bit off of that, that last one. Um, as a progressive Christian church, there are a lot of questions about progressive Christianity. Um, so pr- prepare yourself for that emotionally. Um, so as a progressive Christian church, uh, Grace Point has a reputation for being radically welcoming and affirming, especially in the LGBTQ community. Why is this unusual amongst evangelical Christian churches, and how or why is Grace Point able to be different?
0: Well, I think one of the reasons it's different is, anybody ever have this experience where you drive by a church sign um, for churches that don't meet at bars, and there's a sign out front, and what it says on the sign is, all are what? How, how many of you are like, nuh-uh? Like, I mean, does anybody ever feel like um, compelled to maybe go and just like take those signs, letters off the sign? Because it's really what it means is all can show up in this building, maybe, and everybody can sit in this seat and we'll count you as a number, and you can definitely give us your money, but there's a barrier, there's a boundary. There's only so far inside of this community that you can actually um, go and be a part of. Um, so I, I think part of the problem is in the culture that produced me, the evangelical culture that produced me, uh, it was very much about purity. Whether you're talking about sexual purity or whether you're talking about like just remaining—I mean, it's, it's why when your faith has shifted, for some of you in this room or some of you watching online, your faith shifted, and suddenly people who you've known your whole life bailed on you. Because so okay, just, this is this is a great memory. Uh, when I was first in seminary, I attended the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for a minute. Um, it wasn't a good fit for either of us. And, but I remember being in class. I think it was a New Testament class or a Greek class or something. And they had just produced a new translation, a new um, version of the NIV called the TNIV, today's new international version, which was gender inclusive. And I was so excited about it because it just read back. I loved it. And so I'm sitting in class, and we're sitting at these tables. It's in like an oval shape. The professor comes in, doesn't look down at my desk, where I have my brand new TNIV study Bible, hardback, TNIV on the cover. He comes in, shuts the door, and immediately launches into this rant about how translations like the TNIV are destroying Christianity. I can feel everybody in the room, like the tide receding, like they all back away from me until it's just like me by myself with my big old TNIV study Bible. And that, for me, has become an image of, like, feeling that in that moment. That's what tends to happen because there's this belief that, like, heresy is contagious. And so we just have to pull back from anything and everything that might pollute our faith or might make us less than pristine, Um, which is how I was taught to view God then, too. Like, God, of course, is distant and detached from us, and we can't come near to God because we might pollute God and God can't. When that's just totally illogical um, on the other side of it. So I think evangelicals, the the reason evangelicals have struggled is partly because of their fear of if I get close to anybody who has a different view than me, Then, and, and experience is always the game changer. Like I think for most things in my life, I didn't read myself into a new way of thinking about it. I had an experience of human beings that caused me to go back to my interpretations and to the text and to my experience and say, gosh, what I've been taught doesn't match the experience of a human being I just had. But when you're afraid to have experiences of human beings, so I think that's one thing that happens, right? We, we just are so afraid of experience, so we sort of push away. And the other is um, the assumption that our view of the Bible and our interpretation of the Bible is how it's supposed to be, how it's always been, and how it always will be. Right, this idea that, well, we have have you ever heard anybody talk about the Bible and they tell you they know what it means? Do you ever just think about, what, like, I've actually heard preachers talk about, yeah, I gave a sermon on that nailed it. What, are you in a test kitchen? Like, what are you doing? Like, what do you mean you nailed it? I mean, th- what makes the Bible so fascinating to me is you can keep coming back to it again and again and again, and there are so many layers and there's so much, that, like, it, it's continually unfolding. So this idea that we have it all figured out, to me is really, really problematic. So I think part of it is this refusal. If I doubt any piece of this, if I say we've been reading the Bible wrong around issues of LGBTQ plus inclusion for 2,000 years, then where else have we been reading it wrong? And when sort of your faith is built on having answers and certainty, you take one piece of that out and the whole thing crumbles. So now you're like, well, okay, so maybe we've read it wrong around human sexuality, but what about around atonement? Or, or, or what about what if we've just read the Jesus story completely wrong because we have read it in ways that turns Jesus into a pro-American, pro-capitalist uh, hippie who who really has no concern about what's going on? He just wants peace and love, and he's not concerned about the people who are suffering in the world. That, that's actually how I was taught to read the Bible. Like Jesus is Jesus told people to love each other, and they killed him for it. What? What? So I think we've read the Bible in ways that if we begin to question it, we we question one piece of it, the whole thing crumbles down. And so I think that 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 is why when you begin to raise these questions and conversations, people will bail because I I just have to believe they have the same doubts too. You know what I mean? Like I I just can't believe that there are people who are having experiences of other human beings and not going, gosh. I mean, I can remember being a 20-year-old preacher going around saying stuff that I thought was terrible. But I I thought I had to say it because I thought it was true. But I can remember saying something in a sermon and going, man, I wish that weren't the truth. Now, to my surprise, years later, I found out it wasn't, (laughs) that I was wrong and that I had been wrong the entire time. And so I I, I think this idea that we've been handed something that we're now to protect is a terrible way to think about the Christian faith as opposed to we've been invited to participate in something that is an ongoing, ever-evolving, ever-unfolding Experience of the divine, experience of my neighbor, and that growth and change and transformation, leaving behind one opinion for another opinion, is actually that is the path, that is the invitation, and I I just think we we so I think so everything I just said fear, yeah, I should have just said fear and been done fear, that is that is the core of it all.
1: Yeah. Yeah, my my kids and I were talking about how it's such a strange. Fear is such a strange motivator, and it seems like it's among the primary motivators for a lot of people in the church and the way that they behave and the ways they detach themselves and, yeah, so much of what you've said. That's good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I, I've said this in so many conversations lately. What the church, at least the evangelical church I grew up in, for years and years has offered people two things, certainty and fear. Mm-hmm. Certainty you cannot have. It does not exist. And fear you do not need. So the two things we've given the world are things we can't have and don't need. No wonder people are running away. No wonder people are saying, I don't. Life is traumatic enough without adding that on top of it. Yeah. Like there's enough uncertainty and fear in life without then having this, you know, sky being who's watching you all the time, angry with you, and if you mess up at all? I mean, like, did anybody else grow up in that way? Like, I'm a terrible sleeper. It's something I'm still working on as an adult, but I was with my sleep specialist, and he said, why do you think it takes, like, so much melatonin, and you're on a prescription? Like, why do you think it takes all that to go to sleep? And I said, well, I grew up being told that I could die at any moment, and if I had anything unconfessed in my life, that I would probably go to hell, Or that Jesus would come back at any moment and would, like, hoover up all the people who were living, right, and the rest of us would be left behind. It's like, so I lived in a perpetual state of terror. (laughs) He looks at me and goes, that'll do it. That'll do it. That'll do it. And when you think about it now, I'm like, oh, my God, really? Like, of course I have troubles. And and I don't believe any of that stuff now, but patterns get ingrained in you that it takes years to unravel and untangle. I bet he wondered how he was gonna sleep that night after he heard you say that. (laughs) I know, I know. I I should've prepared him, like, this is gonna be
1: a lot. Trigger warning, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, um, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's classic consumerism, too. The way that you sell people things is you make them afraid of uh, their need of the thing that they're trying to sell you. So it's like, oh, have you ever wondered why you can't get a date? Well, you need our new toothpaste, because that way you can, and now that we're gonna solve the problem in your life, and it, it unfortunately does. It requires fear to sell people. That's how consumerism works. And we have a whole holiday. And we've learned that.
0: Called Thanksgiving. And right after that, we have a whole other holiday, which is maybe one of America's biggest holy days, honestly. Like if you think about what holy day means, like for, for America, this idea of consumerism, we literally spend a day giving thanks, and then we're like, okay, now you're going to tackle somebody in Walmart because they got a better TV deal than you did. Like, and we, and we, we, we just are so hopped up on fear. And, and, I mean, the 24-hour news cycle doesn't help, honestly. I mean, I, I thought the other day, if we, could, if we could stop news organizations from using the word breaking, what would they have left?
1: When, if everything's breaking, is anything breaking? I, it's, all, right. it's all breaking all the it's time. It's all breaking all the, all the time. Yeah. I,
0: and I feel, like, I mean, and in some way, everything, is, like what I do for lunch today is going to be breaking news. It just maybe doesn't deserve to be on TV. Yeah, and so I think this idea of we we've so created a hype culture where we're always trying to one up ourselves and we're trying to be the one that gets to the story for or any of that sort of thing, which then just I mean the, the I mean there's anytime I get a newsletter on my phone I'm afraid to look at it right because I don't know what's I mean and what we've been seeing the the tragedy that's unfolding in Afghanistan all of this stuff happening all the time. Um, Puts us in a perpetual heightened state yeah, of true. anxiety um, and fear about what's going to happen and is the other shoe going to drop? And, yeah. um,
1: and yet, isn't it among the, the the most often quoted lines in the Bible to be not to not be afraid? And to I mean, isn't isn't that aren't we supposed to? Isn't the fear supposed to come down? Isn't that supposed to be yeah. supposed to be the some of the remedy? I there, there's a great uh, quote by Os Guinness. Uh, he, in a, he had a, a very small, really cool book called uh, Prophetic Untimeliness where he talked about the difference between faithfulness and success. And I think this is some of what the church has, the church leadership in America has unfortunately bought into is, you know, he, t- he uses the example. Like, is what we're doing succeeding and, and versus are we being faithful to what we're supposed to be doing? Um, and he used the example of Jeremiah preaching 40 years in the wilderness with no converts He's like, you wouldn't, an American preacher wouldn't get a month into that without changing everything and adjusting and more comfortable seats, a different kind of band. I mean, like, what, what can we do? We got to get, he's like, actually, no, that was, that was right. That's what he was, he was faithful, um, but he had zero converts. And it's like, you know, that it, that's a hard lesson for a, an American church to learn, to say. Um, they're not, they don't always look the same. And often they, sometimes they look like the opposite. And what would it look like for us to be faithful to the work we're supposed to, we're supposed to be doing versus appearing to be successful
0: at the work? Yeah. I think and about, it's different. I think about that often in terms of like, and again, I realize we're talking 2000 years, a language barrier, all sorts of barriers, but w- would Jesus or his first followers experience church in America in the 21st century and go, oh, I know what that is. And I don't mean like, music, and I'm just saying, like, the core of what we exist to do, and all of its uniqueness from what they would have, of, of course, it's look, it's going to look different, and there's going to be different, but, like, the core the core thing we exist to do, which is to announce this, this uh, and it's antiquated language, but this kingdom, right, this idea uh, of a place of justice, peace, mercy, and compassion, is that what we're doing in the world? Um, and so I think it's really easy to get lost in that whole sort of, well, it's, it's got to be bigger, and it's got to be better, and we just got to keep up and to the right without even ever thinking about is what we're doing good for the world is it like is it making the world a better place to exist or is it just building our brand is it helping
1: us get better sleep at night Mm. is our anxiety our
0: fear diminishing are we think about that like what if that were a litmus test for a a, a church gathering like do you feel less fear than when you came in right I, I think that's a pretty good like maybe that should be on the list like we want people to leave feeling less afraid than when they came in. Because our job isn't to amp up the fear. It's to say, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's good work to do in the world. Yeah. All hope is not lost.
1: Yeah. All right, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, so this is a little more of a theological question, but I resonated with it. Can you speak about the concept of God's will slash plan slash timing? Um, you know, God is all-powerful, knowing, and loving. Do things in your life happen because it was a decision made by God, or did it just happen, or a little bit of both? How do you feel about that? So
0: in my you know, 20 years as a pastor, I've had the benefit and the work of being with people on their very best days, right? So whether that was at a wedding or at a uh, birth or something great happened in their life and they called to share that. And that's one of the great things about the gig is that you get to be with people in those moments. One of the other parts of the job is that you're with people in their very worst moments. And I can remember sitting beside a father who's very dear to me um, after his son, who was young, was killed in a car accident. And people were reaching out to tell him that this, this just must be part of God's plan. And he looks up at me and he says, well, God's plan sucks. I said, yeah, if this is part of God's plan, then we should, like, God should be demoted or fired because this is not a good plan at all that you would just cause suffering that seems so needless and so unnecessary because it's some and like what what would the what would the plan be like what could he possibly have been told well yes that happened to you but do you realize that all the way over here somebody got a front row spot at walmart because I also know people who believe that. Like, God's in the business of handing out those sort of, Like, we've spent, what, eight or nine weeks talking about being blessed here, right? It fall, I think this falls into that. Um, I just don't believe that there's an overarching plan where God is pulling out all the little things and, and guiding you to the exact moment. I mean, Think about this. How many of you were told that there was one person that you were supposed to be with romantically for your whole life? Let's just throw our hands up if you heard that. Online, did you hear that? Okay. There are 7 billion people. What pressure? What, think about this. There's one person for you. And in 7 plus billion, you better figure out who that is. And it just so happens there's somebody who they live in your neighborhood. <laughs> of all the luck, <laughs> I didn't have to traverse the world looking for true love. They were down the street all along. Um, so, you know, my wife and I very early on were like, you know, there are probably lots and lots of people that we both could have ended up with and been happy, right? Like that's, that's just how that works. There isn't just, God isn't going well, yeah. And and we, we sort of get lulled into that as we watch, and I, I love a good rom-com, and I, I love it. I'm all about it, um, but that's just not how the world works. I, I don't think God has a specific plan for your life about what you're going to do tomorrow, what you're going to have for lunch next week who you're going to fall in love with, or even if you fall in love with somebody, what car you're going to drive, where you go to college, what happens to the football team. I just don't think God is uh, involved in the minutia of those sorts of decisions, which is good news for you because you are a free human being and you get to choose what you do. And your choices will have consequences, absolutely. But you get to choose. You are not a robot. I do think whatever, this word God is somewhat problematic sometimes too, right? Are we talking about a being who lives above the clouds who occasionally comes in to fairy godmother a situation, you know, bippity boppity boo it in the way that we want. Like, we ask, oh, please do this. And God comes down and helps me pass the exam that I didn't study for but doesn't do anything about world hunger. Like, if you really sit down and start parsing all of the theology many of us grew up with, it just it it ends up painting a picture of a God who uh, just either doesn't care or isn't very good at her job. When here's what I think about God's plan. I think the overarching dream of God for the world is a world of justice, compassion, kindness, mercy, and peace. I think that is God's plan for the world. And I think what falls on us then is how do we join God in bringing that into existence? which then gives us room for creativity and it gives us room for innovation and it gives us room to figure out who we are and how, I mean, anybody else had that sense that you also, not only did God have a person for you, but also a career? And that the career that God had for you just happened probably to be the one your parents wanted you to have? Isn't that, isn't that just great, how that works out? Like God told them first and then they told you. And no, no, you, you, there is no, there is no like, sort of mold here. There is no cookie cutter. You get to be a unique expression of humanity with your own gifts, your own abilities, your own talents, your own passions, and your job, my job in this world is to maybe figure out, here is the, here is the dream of God for humanity and for, for the planet. Now, how, do, how does what I bring to the table bring this about, help inch this forward? I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this quote up, but it's a Frederick Beekner quote where he says like maybe the thing you're supposed to do with your life is where the world's need and your passion meet, mm-hmm. right? and and maybe that's it. So I, I just personally and um, I understand everybody's different. I just personally, for me, the idea of a God who's pull, calling all the shots is not comforting because I think that God's doing a terrible job if that's the case. You know what I mean? I do creates more problems than it solves. But I do think the idea of God is seeking to bring about a certain kind of world. How how does what you bring and you bring and you bring, how, how do we come together and all bring our uniqueness to help bring that world about?
1: Yeah. And one thing that you and I have talked about a pretty good bit, when it comes to things like this, things that are very mysterious and hotly debated, um, is that it's and you already said it once. Is that it's good to carry with us a healthy bit of uncertainty, because how could we possibly be certain ultimately about anything, especially things that are invisible like God and unknowable like the future? It feels like certainty is a pretty uncertainty is a pretty good way to go. Um, it's not the enemy of faith. It's the prerequisite. Um, it's a thing that's required. You know, as we, and so we hold it with some humility as we move forward and, we, and are able to evolve, as you said, you know, some of these ideas
0: as we go. Yeah, and I think that the other thing I would say is when we hold that view, the thing it really does is it sort of absolves us of our responsibility. Because if it's going to happen, it's God's will. God's going to make sure it happens. Mm-hmm. When the reality is um, nothing is guaranteed. Um, the, the certainty about our future, and you talk about certainty, our, uh, the future, our, the certainty of our future on this planet is up for grabs. Um, because I, I don't think climate change really cares about our theology unless our theology is telling us to take care of the planet. And so this idea, of, well, everything's just going to work out okay, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm a hopeful human being. I do believe everything is going to be okay, but it's not going to be okay unless we all show up. And we all bring our unique expressions of who we are to the world to join the divine in this project of making this place a place of justice and peace and compassion.
1: Hmm. Yes. Yeah. All right, so this is a little bit still on that track. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, what are your thoughts about extra-canonical books such as Gospel of Thomas, Philip, Mary Magdalene? Can we use them to learn more about Jesus in the early church? What role, if any, does mysticism play in progressive Christianity?
0: I'll say this. As as a conservative Christian, I had zero space for mysticism. Um, it just just didn't, I had zero space for it. I I can't tell you why other than the fact that um, growing up Southern Baptist, we always called ourselves the frozen chosen. So anything that smacked of like having some sort of experience or when we looked at our friends who were, you know, Charismatic Pentecostal assemblies of God, we were like, I don't know what they're doing over there, but nothing has ever happened in this room that made us want to do that, <laughs> which may mean we were just boring, right? May mean we were just boring. Um, so for me, mysticism just didn't play a huge role, um, but the more uncertain I became, uh, even the moments when I became uncertain about God, for example, There was something inviting about that uncertainty that created in me a a sense of, of, there may be more here than I understand, because, you know, having God in a sort of defined in a systematic theology took out all the mystery. Uh, What is God? Well, God is A, God is B, and God is C, and that's God, right? You, You could do it in one sermon, all the points rhymed, and you had a great poem at the end, um, and that just sort of, you know, God in a laboratory just doesn't work. God in a test tube doesn't work. You, you don't, you know, put God on the table and dissect God. God is an experience. Um, I, I don't even think God is a being. I think God is the ground of being, right? If, uh, I love the line in Acts that, uh, Paul says, um, in God, we live, move, and exist. This image of, if, if God, God is the. If we're the fish, God is the water. Like that's the experience of God. And for me, that has opened me up to, like when people tell me, yeah, I've had experiences that I felt were very real, um, of of God, of Jesus, whatever. Like in my older days, I'd been like, yeah, that ain't real. And now I'm like, who knows? Who knows? People have experiences, and I think they're they're beautiful and they're personal. And um, so I feel much less judgment and much less certainty. And the certainty has been a real gift. For me and that what was the other part of the question well
1: um, just about the extra canonical books and like you know to, to it, can we look at and I, and I that even made me think of uh, first century secular history I mean there's uh, uh, so, and it's basically like how can we use some of those types of books and texts to um, to understand more about Jesus in the early church and yeah. kind of what's your take on bringing some of that in as well and
0: so uh, just a New Testament crash course real quick. Um, When we come to the Gospels in the New Testament, we are not reading histories. When we come to the Gospels in the New Testament, we are not reading biographies. Um, How many of you have read the Gospels, even the three that are called synoptic because they're similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, how many of you have read them and noticed differences between them? Almost intentional differences. Like Mark wrote wrote around the year 70, which is when the world ended for them, when the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. So Mark used this word, but Matthew comes along, clearly had access to Mark, changes it. And then Luke comes along, clearly had access to Mark and Matthew, changes it. Um, John comes along, and you're like, what have you been doing? Because you are somewhere else, man. Um, and so here's, here's what I think. These are not biographies. The gospels are theologies. And they were not written by individuals for publication. They were written in communities to express who Jesus was for them, right? Which is why sometimes the stories are in different orders, and that's why sometimes this story is here and it's not over here. They're theologies. They're intending. So what you actually get with the Gospels is not so much a snapshot of exactly who the historical Jesus was, everything he said and did. What you get is, in the Gospels, a theological portrait of who Jesus is for this community. Right? So when you read the Gospel of Matthew, what, what's coming through there is that Jesus is the new Moses leading us on a new Exodus. Right? What, what you get um, in the Gospel of Mark is sort of, you could tell it was written on the, written quickly and written on the fly, and it's shorter. And it's, it's some of the most early storytelling around the life of Jesus, intending to say that Jesus, I, I think, I have a friend who I've been in discussions with who, he really thinks the Gospel of Mark is... Mostly about, it's, it's kind of a new creation story, um, which is also something John is doing. So when it comes to all these other, I think the Gospel of Thomas, um, I remember I quoted it because I liked how it said something better than one of the canonicals. And somebody on Facebook was like, well, why don't you just quote the one that's real? Like, well, because they're both real? And they say a similar thing. Um, so I, I know there are some, you know, in some Christian circles, it's like stay away from those. I think, they're, I think the Gospel of Thomas is a great read. I don't think the Gospel of Thomas probably tells us. Some people dated earlier than Mark, some people dated way later. It still is not telling us exactly who Jesus is. It's telling us who Jesus was for this community. And so I think those things can be fascinating. Uh, some of the, like there are Gospels that um, are written later that reflect second century issues in a church, in second century what would become known as heresies, but I'm not one to throw that stone because um, I get hit by it often. Um, And if you live in a glass house, (laughs) don't throw stones. Um, But right, these. So I think they can be interesting and fascinating. And I think that spirit can use any of those things to enrich your heart and open your heart and teach you something. So, you know, I think, great, more power to you. If you want to engage them, if you find them interesting, if it's just one of those. For me, it's just out of curiosity. How did Christians in the second century tell the story of Jesus? Well, we have a gospel that was unearthed in the sands of Egypt, and we now see that this is some of the ways, at least this group. And what it also does is it reminds us that from the beginning, the Christian tradition was diverse. It had a varied opinion. Uh, It wasn't this monolith that people try to let on that it was. And it actually didn't become until the, the fourth century when somebody made up a creed just to exclude everybody else. So this idea that the Christian tradition has always been this one thing that was handed down from the apostles to us. It's, it's just, it's going back and changing history to make it feel, to, to support your certainty, as opposed to saying the Christian faith has always been diverse. It has always had arms wide enough to hold a lot of different opinions, a lot of different takes. Sometimes there were arguments, sometimes they disagreed. I think that's all good fun. So, you know, why would we want to present a monolithic Christian faith and say you have to fall in line here when that has never in history before the late 300s been the case?
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Again, many words to say. No. Do whatever you want. No. If you want to read them, if you find them good, good. Enjoy it.
1: And it sounds like maybe the question is why would you, like, what are you, why are, what are you looking for? If it's more detail and certainty to fill up your theological arsenal, m- maybe not. Right. But if it's just to get more texture of what the perspective might have been in the first century or whatever, then
0: sure. Fun.: Yeah, because I mean, we're all in some ways archaeologists in terms of the historical yeah. Jesus. Like um, Jesus existed. Uh, I don't know if that's breaking breaking. Jesus existed. It's just in. <laughs> uh, I mean, all, anybody who's reputable in the world of scholarship says there was a human being named Jesus of Nazareth. And all this stuff happened after, after his earthly life ended. All this happened. But what I find fascinating is I, I like to peel back the layers as best I can and say, what was the life that inspired this? Because whether or not, Je- and I don't think Jesus said and did everything that the gospels say Jesus said. I think some of it he did. I think some of it is theologizing in the early Christian community and some of them, especially in stuff like the gospel of John, I think is this community putting words in Jesus' mouth As a way of saying, for us, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For us, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. For us, Jesus is the light of the world. Um, So it's an expression of who Jesus was for them. But beyond all that, there is a human life. And I can promise you, when my time is over, they're not going to tell those stories about me. Right? They're not. There's something about this human life that was so compelling and so inspiring, and I think... That led them to say, when we were in this presence, whatever the word God means, we felt like we were in the presence of that reality. And now, whatever the word God means, Jesus is part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, for me, it's like, how do we get to that and just appreciate that before he was Christ, before he was exalted, before hymns and creeds and all of that stuff got attached to, to his life, there was a human life that transformed everybody he came in contact with. And that that's, that's, that's what I'm after. yeah,
1: man, that's great. Um, <clears throat> we'll see this may, the, we, we've got a few minutes. The, this, this we'll see how you feel about this one, because I know you have a lot to say about this one, so this might be our last question, but we'll see. Um, as a progressive church, does Grace Point have a doctrinal statement, creed, or confession that it adheres to?
0: No. <laughs> next question. Um, no, next question. No, we don't. Um, and here's why, uh, and, and we're going to talk about this more next year. Uh, so not, not to let it all completely out. Uh, the whole idea of a creed is exclusionary. It, it just is. The, why, why do you create a creed or why do you create a doctrinal system? It's so you know, who's in and who's out. How many of you have ever been to a church where they say the creed every week? Anybody ever been a part of that? I I, I didn't grow up in a creedal church, but um, in that sense, but I just imagine there has to be a ton of anxiety. Like, are you looking around the room going, are they saying it this week? Are they saying it? Is it something we even think about when we're saying it? Like When we just recite a creed, are we thinking about, do I actually believe this? Do I believe this? Or am I saying it because there's peer pressure in the room to say it. And so when somebody asked me this question on a podcast recently, they said, Could Grace Point ever say the Nicene Creed as a part of their gathering? I immediately said no. And then I thought, Wait, only if after each line somebody had the freedom to stand up and go, I object. Because I don't believe that and I'm part of this community. And I, I think that what that for me, like what makes you, here's how you know if you're in, because people, um, as we've been virtual and People have messaged in from everywhere. How do I become a member of Grace Point? And I always respond like this. You want to be a member of Grace Point? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're in. There, yeah, You're in. You, you want to be a part of Grace Point? You're part of Grace Point. You don't agree with everything? Okay, that's fine. You want to be a part? Of it? This community gives you life. This is a community where you want to learn, grow, and experience transformation. Is this a community where you want to put your energy and, and invest your time and your resources to see good things happen in the world? Then you're a part of it. You're in. And I think that... What message do we send to the world when, like, like, how do I become a part of this? Well, there's a 12-week class, and if you complete the class and sign the doctrinal statement, you're in. Like, Whether this is your church home, do we even use that language now? I don't even know. Whether this is your community or not, um, going to a, any community where your belonging is conditional on something you do or believe um, ultimately is not Belonging. It's saying, well, you can be a part of this, but if you have doubts about this, questions about this, thoughts about this, leave those at the door. Um, when what I hope Grace Point is is a place where you bring your full humanity. And it's a place where you belong because you want to belong. It's a place where you are embraced and seen and loved. Um, not because you completed our class, but because this is what this is this feels like home to you. Mm. That's one of the things that I personally have really appreciated about Grace Point.
1: One of the reasons that I was drawn to this community is because of how the intention with which uh, you create abstract space for people to exist regardless of where they land on some of those questions. And that's a thing that will change, and we have to expect that it will. Uh, My wife and I often talk about how like any two healthy, critically thinking people, we have different. We come to different conclusions on uh, invisible, unknowable things, the spiritual things. We we do, but w- what we know is that we wish to process those things together. So there's our commitment. We will do this together. Well, we might not always agree, and maybe one of us will wind up on the other's opinion, and and the other on the first. I you mean, know, and that can flip flop over time. But what we know is we want to do it together. And this seems like a place where people can come and we can do that together even if wherever you land this week or th- or, or this year um, it's a safe place to come and think critically and be welcomed um, and I am so grateful for it um, okay so maybe I've got this just one last we'll, we'll okay. sneak in just one last question um, so I'll read it to you in its entirety here uh, as someone who is part of a church that claims to be progressive but is also Baptist I struggle to find how it's actually progressive uh, so can a church be progressive and denominationally affiliated at the same time uh, what's important to know about church if you're looking for it to be progressive so maybe like what would be the um, the, the, the the telltale kind of what 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 are good indicators that uh, you know if not Grace point that if you're looking for a church um, that you can find the, those Progressive ethics or, or, yeah, what would those things be? Um,
0: well, first let me say, we, we do use the word progressive Christianity around here a lot, and that's sort of where, as a community, where it, you're, you're going to hear things that fall into that. There also is a certain point where I'm like, we can label ourselves to the point um, that it becomes unhelpful. Um, and so before I, I just want to say that before I go in to tell you what a progressive church is. Also because um, I assume all communities are different. Um, I, I assume that there are churches who would, also share the, the sort of the moniker progressive Christian who, if we were to all get together, we would find disagreements around certain things, right? Um, so I'll say a couple things. First, um, all, all progressive churches will be affirming. Now, not all affirming churches are progressive and and there's a difference in that, right? So an affirming, I I wish every church, I wish every church on the face of God's green earth would become affirming. It just needs to happen. It needs to happen. But where the differences might be is maybe that that church is affirming, but they hold sort of some traditional views around theology, around issues like atonement or on, you know, the Bible being inerrant and infallible, those sorts of things. Um, I would say in a progressive Christian space, the, one of the differences is all of that stuff, um, it, it's, it's up for conversation. Um, and, and so we value the Bible. The Bible, for me, um, the Bible is central for me, I love it so much. Uh, I spend most of my time, when, when Joe Lumen, who was here last week, said, I think in Bible, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like the most seen I have ever been in my entire life. When something happens, I immediately put it through a filter of, oh yeah, there's that story in the Bible that's about that, or hey, there's that text that says this. I, I love the Bible. I also, personally, I don't hold it to be inerrant and infallible. I think it's a, it's a human cultural document in response to the divine, uh, and for me, I love it because it 's inviting me to have my own experiences and my own response to the divine so I, I think some some of those um, key things, for example, a progressive church is not going to be an exclusivist church all right we're not we're not going to be trying to can make sure everybody believes what we believe or else they're going to be in big big trouble uh, after this life 's over um, As far as denominational you know um, the the main line does everybody know what mainline? I mean, so non-evangelical churches, so like a lot of Methodist churches, United Church of Christ is a great example, or denominations that have been progressive, uh, like as, as people who look and live like me tend to do, we show up to the party late and claim we started the party. Do you, you know what I mean? Like we show up like three hours in, we're like, look at this great party I'm throwing for everyone. Isn't this so much fun? Um, so mainliners got here way before people like me who grew up evangelical they've been they've been talking about this for a couple hundred years or more. Um, and so we, we now in my head is we didn't start the fire we didn't start the party. Um, uh, we didn't start this um, but we are a un- I think a unique expression of it from the place we come from, which is Many of us grew up in evangelical conservative churches. So the question, can a Baptist church be a progressive church? I mean, be whatever they want. I mean, depending on what kind of Baptist, they'll probably get kicked out. Um, But there are certain branches of the Baptist faith um, that have arms wide enough to hold that sort of thing. They just generally aren't located in the South. Um, So, uh, you know, I I think the, the most important thing is finding a community where you don't have to check your head at the door. Um, and that even if you're in that community and you, there are differences between the, the many and you, you are still treated with respect, you're still treating them with respect, and you're still part of that conversation. Um, so, yeah, I think any and all of that is, is possible. Um, when, I, when I think about a progressive Christian church, here's what comes to mind for me. This understanding that everything we're doing is unfinished. And um, I remember growing up in my Baptist roots, we would, when you preached a sermon, you would file it away. Because if it was good, you're going to preach that thing again. Right? And so you keep it in your file. Back when I first started out, it was literally in a filing cabinet. You keep it in a filing cabinet. You got invited to go preach somewhere. A year later, you, you know, t- five years later, your church was a little different than it used to be. And so you pull that thing back out, blow the dust off of it, give the same sermon again. Um, I find it impossible to do that. If I were going to preach something I preached earlier this year, I'm going to have to work on it um, because it's all unfinished and it's all ever-evolving. And it's all and that to me is not a sign of, well, you guys are just really wishy-washy and don't know what you think. No, I know what I think right now. I'm just not committing to it for the next 10 years. I'm committing to a willingness to rethink, reimagine, reframe, and then give it a go again. Um, and so for me, it really is this ongoing openness to, back to the mysticism, this ongoing openness to whatever spirit is, whatever that means, I trust that experience to continually invite us and move us forward. Um, I I know, and I'm embarrassed about it already, I know that in a 100 years, they're going to look back on progressive churches today and they're going to say, you know, can you believe they weren't speaking out about, like, climate change more? Or can you believe that they were still, like, throwing church parties where they ate meat? Can you believe? And Adam's going to be like, I tried to tell you all the whole time. We had this great conversation where we were <laughs> excited about something, and I said to our staff, I was like, if that happens, we're going to kill the fattened calf. And Adam responds, could we kill the fattened tofu instead? That would feel... A little more ethical. And I think he's right. I think that, that there will be things that we look back on, even progressive churches in 2021, and say we weren't, we weren't moving quick enough on some of those sorts of things. Um, and um, it's going to be true in 100 years too. There's always going to be something new to learn. There's always going to be something that the Christian tradition really is, the Christian faith really is an experience of letting go what needs to be let go of, leaving behind what needs to be left behind, and bringing forward what needs to be brought forward. I don't believe everything I was ever taught was bad. I, I, I don't. I think there are some things in my upbringing um, that when you peel away the layers, there's something there. There's a kernel of something there that as best I can, I want to bring, if it's, if it's humanity honoring and good and generous and compassionate, I want to bring that forward with me. And if it's not, then I feel no, no uh, compulsion to hang on to anything. Because uh, way before they were building shrines and monuments to Jesus, he was an itinerant preacher going from place to place, announcing there's a reality that is bigger than this one. There is a reality that is more just than this one. There is a reality called the kingdom of God, the commonwealth of God, that if we could just see it and lay hold of it, the world could be different. And uh, that Jesus didn't seem to carry a lot of baggage, right? I mean, that, that Jesus seem to be willing to just let go and embrace, and that 's what I hope we're doing here, that's what I hope i'm doing in my own life that's
1: good. yeah it's good I think that's it such good questions we, why don 't we do why don't we do this more often because I have the benefit of hearing you speak freely off the cuff uh, when you didn't know what was coming, and uh, I think we would benefit from and we didn't we didn't get to any questions in the room but um um, you know, let's. We, we should. We'll work on having a way to continue to compile questions for moments like this, because um, if you have them, and surely you do. And if you didn't when we started, I bet you do now, uh, after everything that Josh has said. So, um, we'll 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 have to keep you posted on a way we can keep questions coming in and have a good open dialogue. And even uh, was it what is it the uh, reconstruct? Um, you guys can come on up. And get ready. Uh, is a good opportunity for folks to engage. You know, yep. th- those types of questions even in a, on a in an ongoing. Uh, maybe remind us when that happens and yeah. how that happens.
0: So reconstruct happens, and which, at some point the name's changing on that. But um, reconstruct currently, as it's called, happens twice a week. It happens on Tuesdays at 10 on Zoom and Wednesdays at 6:30 on Zoom. And it really is a wonderful, most weeks a wonderful free for all of questions and uh, people who are expressing doubts, people who are ex- and people just sharing their week. So we would love for you to be a part of that whenever you can. Grace Point, thank you so much. We love you.